ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter with Foreign Policy and your host of Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring the season seven premiere of Smithsonian's Side Door, where we explore how humans and elephants are learning, if not begrudgingly, to live side by side. In just a minute, we're going to play the episode, but first, I spoke to Side Door host Lizzie Peabody about the series and how the episode came to be. Thank you for joining us. I love the podcast. So tell me about the series. This is now on its seventh season, right? Yes, seventh season. And how would you describe for people who haven't heard it, like what is the goal of Smithsonian's Side Door? What's what's it all about? So the podcast is really, we say it's a, a podcast to sneak visitors in the Smithsonian Side Door to discover stories that they wouldn't hear anywhere else. And I think really the goal of the podcast is to make the Smithsonian accessible and available to people who might not have the opportunity to visit the mall or to hear the stories they might otherwise miss on a trip to Washington, D.C. And the whole premise is we tell stories from the Smithsonian, not about the Smithsonian. And it's a great opportunity, too, to really make use of a lot of the audio resources that exist here in the collections and oral histories and and the experts who you don't actually get to speak to when you visit the museums. So it's just it's another way, I think, to really spread what's wonderful about the Smithsonian. And talk us through your story process. I mean, you what is it? You have over 150 million artifacts in the Smithsonian. (laughs) Yes, it's a glut of treasures. How do you narrow it down? <laughs> it's hard. I mean, so part of it is, is you know, producer James Morrison and me just kind of skulking around, sort of poking our heads in, in people's offices, basically, and saying like, hey, would you talk to us? We've always wondered about this random thing. But sometimes it's the museums come to us with, with an idea, thinking like, oh, we're working on this exhibition and there's this element that would really make a great audio story. That's what happened with, uh, we did a story on Leroy Neiman, the artist critics loved to hate last season. And that was a pitch from American history. It was like three different people all said like, oh, this could make a side door episode. And we'd worked with all three of them on different episodes. And at first I was a real skeptic. I was like, how am I going to do an episode about an artist? This is a visual artist. 
I mean, he himself is no longer living. Who can we talk to? So I was a skeptic, and at first I was like, well, I'll just kind of humor them by looking into it. And it turned into a fantastic episode, I mean, one of my favorites. So often our best pitches come from Smithsonian curators and, and experts. Although I will say, we get a lot of pitches that are topics and not stories. So a big part of my job is figuring out how to turn like a subject into a story. Is there any episode that like the, the story behind it you know, is a story in and of itself. The one that comes to mind for that is the outer space and underwear episode where I got to speak with the seamstresses who actually sewed the Apollo 11 spacesuits. And I mean, it was just wonderful. I wish I could have broadcast the whole conversation with with the women I spoke with. There's others that just feel really important, like uh, Reservation Mathematics was an episode we did that dealt with this idea of blood quantum and how it is used to marginalize Native peoples and, well, rather, like, the colonial legacy of this idea of the portion of your blood determining your identity and how it's it's basically how it was weaponized against Native peoples and continues to factor into that concept of identity today. That was something that is very, very well known and talked about a lot within Native communities, but outside of those communities, it's relatively unheard of. And so we worked with an artist who was photographing this phenomenon of blood quantum. And and so it was wonderful to be able to get at this, the history of this racist concept through artwork and through interviews with the people that that she photographed. So that was amazing and, and just felt like, okay, this... This is something we really need to talk about. When I think of the Smithsonian's, I mean, as a visitor, they're they're visual, right? It's artifacts. It's you know that's the connection with history, and with the with the kind of natural world and of all the exhibitions that the Smithsonian has. But what has it been like trying to tell those very visually connected stories in audio? I think it's kind of a misconception that the Smithsonian is mostly filled with objects that talk about history. And I do think that, I mean, there's a very strong historical connection in many of our shows, but the Smithsonian is actually a network of museums, but also um, education and research complexes. So there's a lot of active work going on, active research, and especially, you know, when it comes to ecological preservation and, you know, species migration. There's just a lot more there than I think you necessarily get on a visit. So part of what we try to do is just sort of flesh out that view of the Smithsonian. Um, And tell us about the episode that we're going to hear today on the show about elephants. Oh, elephants. This is a really, I mean, this is a wonderful episode, and it was lead produced by James Morrison, side door producer James Morrison. I think he did a wonderful job really balancing the serious nature of the the subject matter with fun. Uh, so, you know, it, it deals with this idea of elephant-human conflict, elephant-human interaction, um, and focuses on India, southwest India, where elephants are living in close proximity with humans and the conflict that inevitably can result from that sort of, those close quarters. When you have, like, a two- to three-ton animal living side-by-side side with humans, it can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of really looking at How do we reframe the way that we think of ourselves in nature and really consider what level of risk we're comfortable with as humans living side by side with with wildlife? 
One thing that Peter Limegruber said that didn't make it into the episode, which I really stuck with me, um, is that humans get into car accidents all the time. We operate these vehicles that result in our deaths, you know, daily. And that's a level of risk that we're willing to assume. But when it comes to a wild animal, we don't seem to be willing to accept any level of risk. He said, when an elephant kills a human, it's called an elephant attack. But when an automobile kills a human, it's called a car accident. And we have this different way of thinking of, you know, accidents happen versus an animal is attacking. And maybe we need to shift how we conceive of those different risks and what we're willing to risk. That makes sense, yeah, for the kind of bigger payoff of a peaceful cohabitation. I think the idea is, like, if we do want to keep these endangered and threatened animals around, you know, on what terms? It can't be 100% on our terms all the time. That was Lizzie Peabody. And here now is the episode from Smithsonian's side door, Make Way for Elephants. This is Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. I'm Lizzie Peabody. Something is mysteriously moving through China. Something big. It's not a sight you see every day. A herd of elephants leaving their home turf, making their way through southwestern China. They've damaged homes, broken into barns, and even a car dealership, rolled around in courtyards and gorged themselves on crops. Their road trip started from a nature reserve in the south, through towns and fields, causing a million dollars damage along the way. For the past year and a half, a herd of 15 Asian elephants has been eating and drinking its way across China, kind of like a pachyderm pub crawl. And people are obsessed with these elephants. Chinese news channels have devoted entire shows to the journey, even creating elephant holograms. Oh, there's an elephant in our studio. Let me try to pet it. Oh, so sweet. But this is a virtual elephant, so I can pet it. Don't try this at home, as it's dangerous to touch elephants. If you haven't seen the footage of these elephants, it's pretty breathtaking. Especially the shots of the elephants sleeping in a big pile, like they're spooning each other. And there's this little baby elephant smushed in the middle, kind of kicking its mom. It might be the cutest thing I've ever seen. You're right. It's really cute. It's beautiful. This is Peter Limegruber. He's one of the world's leading Asian elephant experts and head of conservation ecology at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute. When I asked him what he thought about all the media hype surrounding the elephants, he said... We're actually learning a lot from all the cameras following this rogue elephant herd. I've never seen a herd of elephants sleep like that. It's very difficult to observe them when you're out in the field, and this drone footage is really exceptional. So that's the first thought. Second thought is, okay, so there must be dozens of drones flying around these guys and people approaching with cameras. No wonder they're running. Nobody knows why these elephants are running through Chinese cities. Some say they don't really have anywhere else to go. Asian elephants live across the southeastern part of the continent, from Vietnam to the east, India to the west, and China to the north. But their natural habitat has dwindled to nearly nothing over the past century. 
Development of more urban areas has led to deforestation. And what's left of their forest home is separated by highways, farms, and cities. So even though the hype around this particular herd is unusual, it's not uncommon to see elephants in China lumbering through markets, sitting on the occasional car, or even taking a bath in someone's backyard pool. In fact, you could argue it's good news. Asian elephants are edging closer to extinction. So the fact that they're a nuisance means they're still around. In some sense, elephants are a conservation success story because we have three to four ton animal um, that feeds on vegetation, coexisting and surviving with people in some of the most populous places in Asia, in the world, in fact. And there's still space left for them to coexist with people. But living side by side with elephants is difficult. It can also be deadly. And some people in Asia are fed up with the massive trail of death and destruction these elephants leave behind. So this time on Side Door, we're heading just slightly south of China, to India, where the relationship between humans and elephants has reached a breaking point. But there may be a way for humans and elephants to get along as neighbors. And it may be far simpler than we ever imagined. That's coming up after the break. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. Hassan is a rural area in the southwest of India. It's tropical, one of the few places in India where small farmers can still make a living off the land. That is, if they can survive the elephants. At night, hungry elephants wander into the farms from nearby forests to munch on rice and bananas. If a farmer tries to protect his crops to chase them off... The elephants might feel threatened and charge, running down the farmer and stomping on him, killing him. And this was happening a lot in Hassan. So in 2014, people there told the Indian government, we have had enough. Get these elephants out of here. And the government listened. A local news outlet caught the mass elephant capture on camera. And just a warning, this audio is disturbing. So if you're listening with a small child or you don't want to hear an animal in distress, we'll give you a couple seconds to skip ahead a minute. Okay, so in the video, forest rangers wrap chains around the legs of a sedated wild elephant lying on its side in the dirt. And they tie a massive rope around its neck. Rangers ride on the backs of trained elephants, and they whip them, urging them to prod the wild elephant with their tusks. A crowd of men sprint away as this massive wild elephant slowly climbs to its feet, yanked by the trained elephant. The trained elephant leads the wild elephant by a rope, like a dog on a leash. Men are screaming from the sides and chasing behind in trucks, and these headlights beam through the dust stirred up by the chaos, which sort of blocks out the sun. A trained elephant headbutts the wild elephant in the side, prodding it to get into a massive cage built on the back of a truck. 
The trained elephant's tusks are bloody from the struggle. The wild elephant refuses to move any further. But the trained elephant keeps pushing and pushing as men inside the cage yank the chains wrapped around the wild elephant's legs. Finally, the wild elephant gives up, backs into the cage. Everyone cheers as the doors slide closed. This scene repeated 21 more times over the next six months. Most of the captured elephants were sent to live in captivity. Some may have even been trained to capture other wild elephants. It is quite painful for the elephant, both physically and psychologically. This is Vinod Krishnan. You do have cases of elephants suffering uh, due to stress, PTSD, because they are extremely intelligent and social animals. Vinod is a project coordinator with the Nature Conservation Foundation in India. He came to the Hassan region six months after these mass captures with a single goal. Don't let this happen again. Because while many people in Hassan cheered these mass captures as the solution to their elephant problem, they could not have been more wrong. It did not work, yes. Six or seven months after the capture, I started to see about 20, 25 elephants uh, in these areas regularly. Vinod actually found more elephants after the mass captures. Removing one herd created a vacuum that other nearby elephants gladly galumphed right into. From the elephant's perspective, why would an elephant leave a quiet forest, say like on the fringes of Hassan, and come into the farmlands and cities where people are shouting at them and throwing firecrackers and they are intelligent, so you would think that they would pick up on the fact that they're not wanted there. So what's motivating them? Currently, only 20% of India's geographical area is forests. And out of the 20%, it's just probably 5 or 6%, which is completely exclusively dedicated for animals. In other words, Asian elephants have nowhere to go. With so much of their native forests cut down, elephants find themselves living next to massive fields of corn and rice and fruit. It's like a gigantic smorgasbord. And so they love eating that. That's, it's like the cookie jar. Oh, yeah. Cookie jar is even better than a smorgasbord. This is Smithsonian's Peter Limegruber again. Even if there were enough habitat, if they're close to that, they would come and prefer that as a food. So, for example, if you put a pineapple plantation next to a nature reserve with elephants, you're going to lose your crop to elephants. That, you know, that is almost unavoidable. Peter and the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute are at the forefront of saving Asian elephants from extinction. He works with researchers like Vinod in countries across Southeast Asia to understand the biggest threats elephants are facing, like poaching, for example. Poaching happens in, and it reduces elephant herds, but the biggest issue really is conflict, which unfortunately, you know, the end effect often is that elephants get killed or are pushed out of their habitat in a better case scenario. So it's, it's the biggest threat to the species. So what do you do when there simply isn't enough space for elephants and people to live apart? When the very existence of humans is the threat to elephants? When the choice boils down to us or them? How do you think the elephants would tell this story? <laughs> uh, yeah, they would not be happy. You know, I mean, elephants would basically feel that they've been trampled upon. Uh, you know, they're oh, const- how ironic. They're constantly losing... They're constantly losing. 
and there isn't really much good in the story for them. Yeah, mm. like most wildlife. Back in Hassan, it felt like everyone was losing, the elephants and the people. This was really clear to Vinod when he arrived, but what wasn't clear was how to fix it. Capturing elephants doesn't solve the problem if more just come to take their place. And sometimes the captured elephants will even come back from wherever they've been dropped off. We have done some research on on elephants in Sri Lanka that were relocated and um, many of the elephants returned to the place where they were captured even after they were moved over 100 kilometers. Oh, wow. Okay, so what about taking elephants to a nature preserve or a park and releasing them there? Turns out Peter's done research on that as well. You know, they're relocated into a park and, uh, you know, within a day or two, they come to the boundary of the park, they break through, and they're back in agriculture. So they're not bothering the people in the first place anymore, but in another place. So you just, instead of relocating the elephant, you have relocated the problem. So maybe you just need better barriers around the nature preserves, right? Well, the Forest Department tried that, building huge concrete trenches around the reserves. These trenches don't work. Elephants actually put mud into their trenches and they cross over. This is Anand Kumar. He's studied elephant-human interactions for the past two decades. He says the elephants will push mud into the trenches and make themselves a nice little bridge so they can walk right over. You can watch it on YouTube. It's pretty amazing. Okay, so what about electric fences? They can break any sort of fence. If there's a tree, uh, you know, bordering the fence, they just break the tree and the tree falls on the fence and <laughs> they just cross over. So they have this ability to solve problems, right? Complex problems. And if the elephant decides that I have to go this way, they will... They'll find a way. <laughs> they'll definitely find a way. And if an older elephant is impatient or just can't find a tree, they've been known to push a younger elephant through an electric fence. Don't worry, it's just a minor shock. I think the biggest injury is probably to the relationship. I thought we were friends, Spike. So India's solutions for containing elephants so far have always failed. And Anand Kumar says there's actually a pretty simple reason for that. It's just because there is a lack of understanding about human-elephant relationships. That's what I strongly feel. Luckily for us, we have some human-elephant relationships at work right here in Washington, D.C. So I headed to the Smithsonian's National Zoo. This is where elephant keeper Ashley Fortner introduced me to elephants Ronnie and Bozy. Oh my gosh, here she comes. Can you see? You show me your foot? <gasps> Ronnie, foot. Good girl. Oh my gosh. She's putting her foot up on the wall. Her toenails are like as big as my head. <laughs> That's oh. right. <laughs> Did you touch it? No, can I? Yeah, let me get her. Just like this? She's like leathery and... (laughs) You're welcome. That was a face full of air. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So first off, elephants are massive and a little snotty, to be honest. They're also a lot smarter than most people realize. Five Asian elephants live at the National Zoo, and zookeepers regularly give them intelligence tests. Shanti is 
the most intelligent right. elephant I have ever known. Marie Galloway is the elephant manager at the zoo. She's been here for over 30 years and worked with Shanti. So they were supposed to get food out of a toy that they couldn't just reach in and get it. And they tried all kinds of different ways, shaking it, turning it upside down, breaking it. Shanti filled it with water and made the food <gasps> float to the top. Wow. So, yeah. That so, is incredible. <laughs> I don't think I would have thought of that. Elephants are also one of the few animals that can identify themselves in a mirror. Most dogs can't do this. And they're really curious tinkerers. Take Kamala, for example. She's our resident um, undoer of things, for (laughs) lack of a better term. So like clevises and locks, she always messes with them. She can unscrew things and open things herself. She actually is our most problem solver in that sense. So she could Um, like unscrew a jar of jam or something? Probably. Yeah. I would I would not put it past her. Elephants are also extremely social and they each have unique personalities or elephantalities. And these are shaped by their elephant social circles. Like Ronnie, for example, she's the elephant who blew snot in my face. She is our resident drama queen. When Ronnie was born, she was the only child in the group of adult elephants. And she's very much an only child. She um was treated very much like a princess by the other elephants and got to do whatever she wanted. And she's still kind of a princess and rules the roost. (laughs) So the the socialization amongst their family can have a great effect on who they are and how they develop. And just like an elephant's social circle will shape its character, it also shapes its behavior. Marie says baby elephants are a lot like little humans. They'll copy whatever they see other elephants doing, like big time. Marie says one of the best examples of this happened a few years ago. A young elephant had just arrived at the zoo. It didn't have any of the physical therapy training that the other elephants have, like stretching their legs or climbing on rocks to get exercise. So for the first few days, they just let her hang out by herself, while zookeepers led the other elephants through their daily exercises. And they would do all these different behaviors, and we'd turn around and look behind us, and the untrained elephant would be doing the behaviors behind us. So she would climb up onto a rock, Um, After we got him on a rock and took him back off, she would lay down. After we got him up and moved him on, she would just do the same behaviors. And just like elephants can learn to climb a rock or build a mud bridge, they can learn to not tear down a fence or step on a motorcycle. And it's this understanding of how elephants learn that Vinod says could be a key to easing elephant-human relations back in India. More on that after the break. If Tom Hanks were an elephant, he'd be Bima. Handsome, charismatic, downright decent. He's a gentleman. I don't think any human being can be as patient as him. Except Tom Hanks. Vinod says everyone in Hassan knows and loves Bima. He's the biggest wild elephant around, so it's easy to spot him. He's usually just hanging around town by himself, maybe strolling down the road or, yes, snacking on some crops. But it's just that people don't seem to mind. That's because Bima walks on the paths when he strolls through a farm. He doesn't trample the crops, and he doesn't linger. He just walks on through, scoops up some rice with his trunk, and carries on, leaving little trace that a six-ton eating machine just swept through the area. I think somewhere he realizes that 
if i keep my calm and composure people will accept me and bima might be on to something people clearly have told the forest department that we will not allow you to capture bima under any circumstances you know wow. so that is uh, something that i find it hard to believe because given a choice people always don't want the elephants to be around but you know bima enjoys this really celebrity status where he's you know has <laughs> he's a celebrity <laughs> vinod says that not only is bima a gentleman gentle fent other elephants are calmer when he's around and he's teaching younger elephants how to be gentle fents as well there's another uh, elephant who would spend a lot of time with bima and now after 2 years of watching him now has become more confident and when people approach him he just you know keeps his composure and this composure is hugely important when it comes to elephant human relations bima's soft diplomacy is helping to convince people in hassan that elephants can peacefully live among them vinod says this takes pressure off the forest service to remove elephants but even more importantly Human deaths happen when elephants lose their composure, when they get surprised or spooked and charge. And when elephants kill humans, that's when humans kill elephants. Vinod's mentor Anand Kumar puts it this way, the best way to save elephant lives is to save human lives first. Anand learned this back in 2002. Between a span of 5 years, elephants had killed around 150 people in northern India, and humans had killed 200 elephants in retaliation. So the government reached out to Anand and said, "People are getting killed. Can you help us out?" And Anand says, "Absolutely, absolutely." So Anand did what researchers do. He gathered data. He looked at the 48 most recent human deaths to understand when and how people were being killed, and he noticed a pattern. First, most people were being killed on roads. 29 of 48, which is 60% of the deaths occurred on roads. Second, most deaths happened during a 3-month span of the year, between December and February. The reason for this is that that was the time that lot of elephant movement that you would see and the rainy season stops here there's a lot of people move around so most deaths happened during the dry months of the year festival season when people are out late maybe having a few drinks it's also a busy time for elephant migration so you've got more people and elephants on the road at the same time and then anand found something that gave him his aha moment nearly everyone killed had no idea elephants were even in the area so if these people had known that there were elephants in their surroundings all these people would have been alive today so anand figured why can't we just tell people if there are elephants in the area this was 2004 and smartphones weren't a thing yet so he turned to local television we started displaying elephant location information as a scroll as a text message on a television screen elephant alert elephant spotted near the market stay clear kind of like that but then people started watching satellite tv and anan couldn't reach them so he slid into their dms and started texting folks but this was an impoverished area of india where a lot of people couldn't read so he began sending pre-recorded voice messages in the local language tamil 
பொதுமக்களுக்கு ஒரு அறிவிப்பு சோலையார் சிலுவை மேடு பகுதியில் And he also installed about 35 flashing lights on roadways where elephants were known to roam. If elephants were around, the lights would flash. And between the elephant alert messages and the flashing lights, the result was clear. 31 lives were saved. Human deaths dropped 80%. And that stopped the backlash against elephants, making it easier for people like Anand to protect them. But 300 miles away in Hassan, the situation was still tense. Even after the mass captures, protests to remove Hassan's remaining elephants continued. They all want a permanent solution. That's what everyone's demanding. But nobody knows what the solution is. All they've been saying is, you remove the elephants from here. We don't, we are facing too many problems here. So they're protesting against the foreign department. Vinod wondered if Anand's elephant alert system could be used to prevent another round of mass captures. He knew he didn't have much time to ease the tension. So he got to work putting Anand's system in place. But he quickly found out it's pretty hard to get thousands of people to sign up for your mysterious text alert. Initially, people would ask me, like, why do you need this information? What are you going to do about this? Are you going to come and chase the elephant? So what, what, what is it? What's in it for you? Uh-huh. Uh, it people were a little important. suspicious. Yeah, they were. Uh, the initial few years was uh, very difficult. Vinod slowly built trust with local people by sharing his research and showing that he was there to protect them as well as the elephants. After spending day after day talking with people on the streets, Vinod gathered more than 5,000 phone numbers. These people have become his network of informants, calling him and telling him where they've seen elephants. He's sort of Hassan's elephant guy. There are days when I am answering phone calls throughout. Uh, on a busy day, if there are elephants scattered across the study area, you will have phones coming in from different parts of the study area. After all this hard work, Vinod waited to see if it would pay off. Before the alert, five people a year were killed by elephants in Hassan. Could he shave that down even just a little bit? So when Vinod saw how many people died from elephant attacks in Hassan in 2018, he couldn't believe it. One. Okay, this is a good start, but maybe it's a fluke, Vinod thought. So in 2019, he looked at the new numbers. Zero deaths. Wow, okay, so maybe we're on to something. The true test would be the 2020 numbers. And when he saw those, he was shocked. Zero. Vinod believes he and Anand have found a way for elephants and humans to live together. Somewhat peacefully, he might add. And it doesn't take cages or trucks, barbed wire and electrified fences, trained elephants or concrete trenches. The solution is something as simple as a text message and some warning lights. And most importantly, a shift in how people view their relationship with their elephant neighbors. I would say that it is possible to coexist. uh it may not be very very you know uh, utopian like perfect harmony there will always be this uneasy calm that will prevail but elephants are willing to coexist it's the people who don't see the other side 
And it's easy for us to sit in America and think, gosh, glad we don't have an elephant problem. But in North America, we have our own elephants. And they look like gray wolves, cougars, and grizzly bears that we want to stop from going extinct. Peter Limegruber says living with these wild animals will never be 100% on human terms. If we really want to protect these endangered animals, we have to accept a hard truth. They can kill us. Just like car accidents, we can try to reduce the risks, but there's no escaping that some death is unavoidable. Yeah, it's a difficult part to talk about because, because you know, we're talking about human lives. I mean, who, who would want to be flip about that? Or, right. you know, of course we want to prevent any human casualties, but we also, we also want to, for nature to exist. And, and I think if we accept ourselves as part of nature, then we have to accept the fact that nature sometimes will kill us. Wow, that's a really striking statement to me, because I do think that in, in many ways, especially we city dwellers think of ourselves as being outside of nature, in a sense. Like nature is something you go seek out selectively on a weekend with your hiking backpack. Yeah, but I think that's what we're seeing now, right? With all this global change and climate change, is there's a limit to that. We are not outside of nature. We cannot exist without nature. You know, it's coming to terms what that relationship needs to be so that we have a healthy earth and, you know, a good life on earth. <laughs> it's just like Vinod says, elephants are ready to coexist. Are we? And that was the episode from Smithsonian's Side Door, Make Way for Elephants. You can listen to all seasons of Side Door wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to Lizzie Peabody and the Smithsonian Side Door team for letting us feature this episode. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.